All right. Well, good morning. If you weren't here last week, we have just kicked off a brand new series called Regifting. If you're not familiar uh, with that concept, let me try to explain. Uh, my wife and I, Heather, she, got, uh, she and I got married in college, uh, and a lot of our friends got married in college at the same time. A lot of our classmates got married, which means we were all poor together. And the reality was, is we just didn't have enough money to keep buying wedding gifts for people every semester. So there was a culture of regifting that took place. And we'd, every, we'd all just find something, a gift that we received for our wedding we didn't mind parting with, just rewrap it, and then give that as a gift. And sometimes there were gifts that would make, their, make its way through like three or four different couples before it was finally, before it was finally done. Now, regifting, there's a way of regifting that's just all about being cheap. But then there's another aspect of regifting that really, maybe, that's where we find some of the most cherished gifts we have. I bet, I bet that there are some of you that you have something in your home that's meaningful to you. It wasn't brand new. It was sort of regifted to you, and it's one of the most cherished things that you have. For me, I didn't bring it with me today, but, but I have something like that. And uh, it was about 25 years ago that my grandfather passed away. And after that, my grandmother gave me his old school safety razor. You guys remember safety razors? That's what I shave with. And uh, it's a way uh, for me to remember him and feel connected with him. It's hard. Every time I stand in front of the mirror and I lather up and I do all this stuff, it's just, I, I think about him, right? It's a, it's a cherished thing that I have. Now, our tagline for this series is, I don't know if you can see this, you have to get Jesus to give Jesus. And the idea behind this regifting series is that there is a way to live our lives that's one giant act of regifting. And we want to be a kind of gift to the world for Jesus so that people, because of their interaction with us, that God would use us to help people discover the gift of Jesus. And, and what I'm going to say next, it's super obvious, but I think it's at least worth pausing and, and thinking about for a second. You can't share what you don't have, right? And so the question today is, do you know Jesus? How well do you know Jesus? We have a few probably big goals for this series. Number one, we just want to behold him. We want to see Jesus. We want to look at the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus. We want to grow in, in our relationship with him. We want to grow in our experience of him. And we want to grow to be more like him. That's what, that's what this is about. And so this is a constant drumbeat throughout our series. You're going to hear this every week. We call this our series thesis, and it's this right here. We are the wrapping paper that people have to get through to get to Jesus. What do we look like? What are we wrapped up with? What is it like to experience us? We are the wrapping paper that people have to get through to get to Jesus. And to help us engage this today, I want to ask a question to really settle in this mindset. And my question is this, what trade-offs would you be willing to make if it meant that you looked more like Jesus? What trade-offs would you be willing to make? And life is full of trade-offs, right? You guys make, we, we, we make trade-offs all the time. If you want to have it like a great intimate relationship, you're going to have to give up. You're going to have to trade off a measure of independence so you can have a relationship like that. This part of wisdom is we give up things that we want now so that we can have what we want most later. How many of you know, there, hey, there were times in my life I gave up sleep now so that I could have career advancement later, right? Life is full of trade-offs. So my question is, what trade-off are you willing to make if it means I could be wrapped up and look more like Jesus? 
And the flip side of that, are there trade-offs we're not willing to make? Even if it means that we would be more like Jesus, just not willing to go there, not willing to do that. And if we, if we engage it that way, it creates a kind of friction point, doesn't it? And today we're going to see a real friction point about are we really willing to be like Jesus and follow Jesus? We're going to see how that plays out in, in one of the scenes in Jesus' life. And I want us to ease into this scene in Jesus' life by looking at Matthew chapter 16. Now this section of the Gospels, it begins like this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain. And I just want to pause here. It seems like right here from that time on that backstory is important. Context is important. And the question I have is what happened right before this time because it seems to be a pivotal kind of a turning point time. Leading up to this moment, the disciples of Jesus, they've seen him perform miracles. They've seen him heal people. It's amazing. They, along with massive crowds of people, thousands of people gather and they listen to Jesus teach. And, and just the, the common response is he teaches with authority like we have never experienced before. Jesus was addicting to listen to. The disciples got to right shortly before this moment, they had a profound experience with Jesus. They were on a lake in the middle of a storm and Jesus walks out to them on top of the water. And one of the disciples, probably like the head, the lead disciple, a guy named Peter, steps out of the boat and walks on top of the lake to Jesus. But then right before this, right before this, there was a moment where there's a massive crowd and people didn't, I guess, they weren't thinking about logistics. There wasn't enough food. Jesus fed 4,000 people with basically a kid's sack lunch. And that became a tipping point. That is the moment. That's the moment, especially for the disciples, the guys closest to Jesus, that, that they stopped just being inspired by Jesus and amazed by Jesus. And they became convinced this man is truly from God. He is the Messiah that we have been waiting for. And this guy, Peter, he is the first one to have the guts to say out loud, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. And there's this moment, and Jesus is there huddled up with his disciples, and he confirms that. And he essentially says to them, you are my guys, and I've got significant responsibility for you. And, and, and the major aspect of that was representing him to the world. And it's right after that that we get to this. That's the backdrop for this conversation. Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law because of the people who occupy positions of power religiously and a little bit politically, he's going to suffer. It's going to be unjust. And that he must be killed. And on the third day, he's going to be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine getting to Jesus' face? <laughs> <Could you? laughs> never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. So Jesus turned and said to Peter, now this is where Jesus uses Peter as a teaching moment. Could you imagine being that guy? Hey, you guys just hear what he said? <laughs> Let me explain to everybody. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be? What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Today, that might be the most important question we ask. Because today, there could be moments, for those of us in the room, for those of you watching online, that's a bit disruptive. I didn't know that this is exactly what Jesus was like, or I didn't know that this is exactly what it meant to be like Jesus, or I didn't know this was exactly what it was like to follow Jesus. I think it was C.S. Lewis who essentially said uh, something along these lines, if you want a better life, don't be a Christian. (laughs) But Jesus asked this question, raising the stakes, letting us know what is at stake here. What can you give in exchange for your soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Before we break this passage down, I want to I engage uh, these last couple of sentences that, that Jesus gave. He talked about the coming of his kingdom, and it is just going to be obvious. It's going to be undeniable that he is king, and his kingdom has arrived. What is he talking about? Well, there are a number of things. There are a number of things in Jesus' life and in his ministry that illustrate that. Certainly, it's going to be obvious one day when he returns. I mean, it was obvious in some of the miracles that, that he did. But the thing that I think was most obvious and the thing that I believe Jesus is referring to at this point is his resurrection. It will be undeniable that he is God in the flesh, that he is king, and his kingdom has come. And it's important for us to, under, to be able to really understand this passage and to really get it for us to see that Jesus is king. Not like a ceremonial king. He is king. He's the authority. So with that in mind, let's break this passage down. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, I'm going to suffer many things. And Peter said, nope. Mm-mm. And he gets in Jesus' face and rebukes him. Never. This shall never happen to you. Peter's there with Jesus. He's eye to eye with Jesus. Can't see him. His his expectations, his his preferences, his agenda for Jesus, it's turned up so loud in his own mind. He cannot hear the gospel message directly from Jesus. And I don't feel like I'm in a position where I could judge him. I probably would have done the same thing. I feel like Peter's totally understandable here. And let's try to understand him. Let's try to get in his shoes a little bit. Peter, like everybody else, he had grown up in a country that's occupied by a foreign uh, military force. They're occupied by the Romans. Nobody wanted them there. They wanted them out. And here's Jesus, and he's displaying all kinds of power and authority, and he's talking about that he's the king, and his kingdom is coming. And Peter's probably thinking, you're going to kick out the Romans. It's going to be great. And then he had just seen Jesus feed 4,000 people with a snack. It's Jesus, you're going to make our lives so much better. You're going to bring so much prosperity to us. That's how, that's how he's probably understanding and interpreting Jesus. But Jesus keeps talking about, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And it leads to this explosive moment between Jesus and Peter. And what I hope that you're able to see today is this explosive moment, it doesn't reveal that Peter is a bad listener. And it doesn't reveal that Peter doesn't have enough intelligence. What this explosive moment reveals is Peter's idolatry. And that word 
idol or idolatry. It doesn't show up in this passage, but it's part of the narrative pattern of God's Word. And if we take God's Word seriously, we should recognize whenever it's represented. And so to make sure that we're all on the same page, let's make sure we can, we're operating under the same definition of idolatry. Idolatry is misplaced worship. It's looking to anyone or anything other than Jesus for significance, security, and satisfaction. Everybody in life, everybody in life wants these three things, significance, security, and satisfaction. Everybody wants them. Are these good things to want? Are you guys with me today? You guys have enough coffee? These are good things to want, but they're not just wants. They're needs. We need them. Now, this is the listen close moment. Are you ready? This is the listen close moment. There is a world of difference between trusting Jesus for significant security and satisfaction versus using Jesus to get things that make us feel significant, secure, and satisfied. Are you with me? There's a world of difference between saying, Jesus, I find this in you and from you versus using Jesus to get things that make us feel significant, secure, and satisfied. For a number of years, I had the privilege of pastoring in the state of Utah. And uh, as you might know, Utah is home uh, to, um, to a, a religious approach to God that's different than Bible-only Christianity. And one day, I had the privilege of being invited into the home uh, for lunch of a prominent leader in, in that religion. And, and it, I, I felt honored, and we're talking, and he just asked me this question. He said, Rick, tell me, why do you obey God? And I thought, well, that's easy. It's, it's just it's an expression of love and trust, and gratitude. And so, because we're having a conversation, I just reciprocated the question. Tell me, why do, you, why do you obey? And he said, that's easy. He said, I'm selfish. And when I obey, God has to bless me. And I thought, well, I appreciate your candor. But the motivation that he was describing is something that is anti-gospel. What he was describing is, I use God, I use Jesus to get the things that make me feel significant, secure, and satisfied. Well, how is the gospel different? In the gospel, we recognize we have already been fully blessed in Jesus. And it's not about getting stuff from Jesus. It's about getting more of Jesus. And so when we obey, it's saying we trust you, we love you, we appreciate what you have done for us, and we just want to follow you, and we want more of you. And if Peter were here with us today, I think he would say, guys, let me tell you about that day in my life. Let me tell you about the events leading up to that conversation. I was stuck in the wrong mindset. I was trying to use Jesus to get the things that would make me feel significant, secure, and satisfied. I wasn't finding those things in Jesus. And what I hope that we're able to see is this, is that Peter did not rebuke Jesus because he was trying to protect Jesus from harm. Peter rebuked Jesus because he was trying to protect from harm the things he wanted to get from Jesus. And this is a kind of check yourself before you wreck yourself moment. Sometimes our idols nudge Jesus off the throne and sometimes they shove him. You ever have a moment like that? This is a shove Jesus off the throne of authority moment. And there are few things in life Maybe nothing in life like difficulty, hardship, and suffering that exposes where our loyalties lie. 
Are they with Jesus? Are they actually with idols? And I hope I, I, there's a question I want to ask, and I hope that I can kind of sidestep a political debate or sidestep a theological debate about all the difficulty and hardship and turbulence that we've all experienced in our own country and around the world over the past few years. Things related to politics and social movements and, and the pandemic and economic stuff. I want to ignore the cause of those things. And I just want to ask this question. Is it at least possible that God, because he loves us, wants to use those things to help us see idols that we might have in us? Is it at least possible, because he loves us, that God wants to use the turbulence and the difficulty and the suffering in our lives to help expose for us areas where we're looking to something other than Jesus for significance, for security, or for satisfaction in life? Here's another question. If, if my wrapping paper isn't quite like Jesus, if I look like something other than Jesus, do I want God to show me that? Am I willing for him to shine a spotlight on my life to help me see that? The big reveal and this explosive moment between Peter and Jesus is this. Peter was with Jesus, but he wasn't really with Jesus. He loved Jesus and he liked Jesus, but he didn't love being like Jesus. So this is Jesus' response. And why do you think this response should be when the authority of the king is challenged? This is Jesus' response. Get behind me, Satan. That's going to leave a mark. That's pretty serious, isn't it? That's pretty stern. That probably stung to hear. How should we understand what Jesus is saying? Get behind me, Satan. I think that there are at least three things that Jesus is communicating. One of them is primary. There are three things that Jesus is communicating, but one is primary. I think we can summarize it like this. He's saying to Peter, get out of my way or follow my way, but don't block my way. Get out of my way, follow my way, but don't block my way. And this one right here, this is the one that's primary. Jesus loved Peter, and Jesus is leading Peter, and he's developing Peter and trying to mature Peter. He wants Peter to follow him. But if Peter is going to follow Jesus in that moment, just like probably many of us, it's going to require repentance. It's going to require him changing his mind. It's going to require him changing his mindset. It's going to require him breaking up with some deep down allegiances that are not to bad things, but to good things that are elevated too high in his life. He's got to break up with some idols. And again, this is where I feel like, I feel like I can relate to Peter. I feel like there's something here. I feel like there's a lot here where we can really connect with this guy and understand this guy, maybe in more ways than we realized. Peter's not this despicable dude. Peter is a guy who's probably, and understandably so, primarily shaped and defined by his cultural expectations and by the things that he kind of hoped for and everybody was kind of hoping for as he was growing up. And my question is, do I do that? Do you do that? Do we sometimes approach Jesus and we want Jesus to just match our cultural expectations? Do you think that's possible or do you think it's crazy? Peter Scazzaro, 
He's a pastor. He's, a, he's an author. Um, he wrote this book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, which I would strongly recommend to you. He says this, and this is how he's kind of helping shine a spotlight on us, on how maybe we might try to do the same thing to Jesus that Peter was doing to Jesus. He said this, within the church, to Americanize Jesus is to follow him because he makes my life better and more enjoyable. Does that make sense? Now, he's not saying there's something wrong with being American or loving America or being an American. That's not what this is about. What he's elevating is, what he's trying to shine a spotlight on is a caution that everybody from any culture would have. Everybody from any culture would be vulnerable to trying to make Jesus match the culture that formed us instead of being transformed by Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with the red, white, and blue. Nothing wrong. But there is something wrong. We've, we've kind of done the same thing that Peter is doing. If we're using Jesus or trying to make Jesus squeeze in and match some of our cultural expectations, and we know that we have Americanized our faith, or we've Americanized Jesus, if we're using him and if we're looking to him as a way just to kind of make our life better and more enjoyable. And somebody might ask, well, Rick, what's wrong with having a better life and more enjoyable life? Well, nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's the kind of thing that a lot of us get used to. I feel like I've gotten not just used to it, but addicted to it. We have lots of comforts, don't we? We have lots of prosperity. Even in difficult times, we have lots of prosperity. We're used to all kinds of success. At our doorstep, we have access to world-class medical care. We have amazing, beautiful, wonderful things because of where we live and when we live and this country. They are great things. And it's, I think we're just vulnerable. I think it's just easy. I think we're vulnerable. And we're like, Jesus, you're, that's what you're about, right? You're here to give me more of that, right? <laughs> that's a friction point that, that Peter was at. And what we see is that sometimes following Jesus does not feel like success. That sometimes following Jesus, it feels like losing because we worship a king and we follow a king who gave up his rights, who gave up his privileges. And he was willing to do it and he was glad to do it. He gave up his rights and his privileges to suffer for our well-being. And he calls us to do the same. I want to look at this verse again, this breakdown between Jesus and Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You're a stumbling block to me. Now, do you guys know what Peter's name means? His name means rock. And Jesus says, hey, listen, rock, you're a stumbling block. I'll leave it to you to decide if Jesus is endorsing sarcasm there. In English, this is two words. In the Greek, in which this was originally written, stumbling block is one word. And I want to show you what it looks like. It looks like this. And it means a cause for sin or offense. It means an obstacle or a cause for an offense. This is what this word sounds like in Greek. Scandalon. What English word does that sound like? This is where we get our word scandal. And when Peter's like, no, 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 Jesus, I'm not going to let this happen. You're not going to do that. And because Peter is trying to get Jesus to match his deep down idolatry and his own preferences and his own kind of culturally defined expectations, Jesus' response is, Peter, you are a scandal to me right now. 
You are an obstacle and a cause for offense. And I don't want to just kind of like be on the sideline and be like, Peter, you're a bad dude. I want my response to be, Jesus, what do I need to see? What do I need to know? What do I need to hear from you? If, if I'm vulnerable to kind of trying to make you match my, my culture, what scandal might I be vulnerable to? The thing I want us to think about this morning is the scandal of Americanized Christianity isn't the reality of suffering, but a refusal to suffer. It amazes me still that people will use the cause of hardship and difficulty and suffering as a reason to not take Jesus seriously when taking Jesus seriously, he promised it. He said, in this life, you will have problems, you will have difficulty. It is a lock. It is a guarantee. Following Jesus is never a promise or a way out of difficulty. That's not the scandal. The scandal of Americanized Christianity is becoming so addicted to our comforts and our successes and our rights and our privileges that like Peter, we would intentionally and actively resist the leadership of Jesus. Now, before I give us some examples, I want to look one more time, the third thing in this exchange between Peter and Jesus. Jesus said, Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Your thinking is wrong. You're not, your thinking isn't lined up with me. And, and a massive part, not the only part, but a massive part of being a disciple is making the way that we think align with the way that our leader thinks. And so we would say, Jesus, what, how do you think about money? That's how I'm going to think about it. Jesus, how do you think about sexuality? That's how I'm going to think about it. Jesus, how do you think about conflict with people? That's how I'm going to think about it. Jesus, how, Jesus, what do you think? How do you think about suffering? This is how I'm going to think about it. And if I could be just really honest today, and I'm going to be, I think, I think that we are seeing evidences of an Americanized Christianity making its way into the church world, and it's coming with greater volume and greater frequency. Now, these are the kinds of things that if you pay attention, you'll hear in the church world. They're coming for us. They're coming for you. They're coming for our churches. Okay, maybe they are. We have to stand against the secular agenda. We have to stand against this extreme political agenda. We have to stand against the sexual agenda. We've got, there's agendas, we've got to stand against them. And there are loud and prominent voices all around, and I know you've heard them, that they are, they are trying to cultivate fear in you because they want to use you, and I am sick of it. We got to be real. There are, there are real agendas at work in our country that would hurt people and harm people and lead away from human flourishing. And there are real agendas in our country that should break our hearts. And there are real agendas at play in our country that deserve a Jesus-like response from us. And how we respond to things that happen in our country, it's going to expose whether or not, whether or not we are like Jesus. I heard a pastor say one time, it's a whole lot easier to demonstrate for Jesus than to demonstrate Jesus. Are you hearing me? You hear things like, we gotta fight fire with fire and we have to take control. 
And my question is, if we're going to be a gift to a broken world for Jesus, what should our wrapping paper look like? If we're going to be a gift to even a world that's hostile to the gospel, if we're going to be a gift to them for Jesus, what should we look like? Jesus answers that question. He says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must, what's this word? Deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And at this day and time, when Jesus said these words, cross was not a metaphor. It was just a literal device to inflict suffering and death. There were not expressions like, this is just my cross to bear. This was only understood literally, and it would have fallen hard on the ears of Jesus' first followers. They would have interpreted it as if Jesus said something like this to, to them, take up your guillotine and follow me. Take up your gallows and follow me. Take up your firing squad and follow me. Take up your electric chair and follow me. And what Jesus is saying is this, will you deny, will you die to your preferences so that you can live to my preferences? Will you die to your agenda so that you can live to my agenda? Will you die to getting your way so that you can live for my way and follow my way? These are the things we have to decide. Are we going to be wrapped up to look like our culture and our tribe and our groups? Or will we be wrapped up with humility and self-denial and a willingness to suffer for the well-being of others. Probably one of the unsolved mysteries of history is the conversion of a guy like the Apostle Paul to Christianity. Apart from the resurrection, there is no logical sense that this guy would go from being a persecutor and a killer of Christians to a follower of Jesus and a leader of Christians. And he would, because of his experience with the resurrected Jesus, he wrote this. He said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. People don't understand. We get that. Jews demand signs. They're super religious. And then the philosophically oriented Greeks, they, they look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a foolishness to Gentiles. Do you guys remember this word, stumbling block? It's the same word. And I think what Paul is saying is, listen, some, not all the time, but sometimes there's a choice to be a scandal to Jesus or a scandal to the world. And what do we choose? A scandal to Jesus or a scandal to the world? But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, people who are kind of religiously minded naturally, people who are philosophically minded naturally, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is is stronger than human strength. I want to make two quick observations. Number one, the way of Jesus is going to look weak to the religious and it's going to look foolish to the irreligious. There are times if you say, I'm going to follow the way of Jesus, I want to be wrapped up like Jesus, I'm going to trust him and delight in him and follow him. Your friends who are religiously minded, not gospel minded, but religiously minded are going to say that you look weak. And then other people who, they just, they don't know Jesus. They're not, they don't understand him yet. They're just going to think this is foolish. And the question is, why? Why does the trade-off, what makes it worthwhile? I want to share this thought right here. The way of Jesus is the antithesis of the world's way. It's the opposite of the way the world naturally operates. 
and yet it is the achievement of the world's wants. Do you know at rock bottom, every political agenda, every social agenda, every sexual agenda, every worldview, every approach to life, people are looking for significance, security, and satisfaction in life. That's at, what, that's at rock bottom. That's what everybody's looking for. And this is what we know. We know this, don't we? They're ultimately and only found in Jesus and given from Jesus, by Jesus. That no matter what you are able to gain in life, some measure of suffering or death will snatch it away from you, but only Jesus has the ability to give us those things in a way that we never lose them. Who is going to tell them? And who's going to show them? Thursday was the 486th anniversary of the execution of this man, William Tyndale. If you don't know who he was, he was a real rebel. This was his crime. Are you ready? He translated the Bible into English so people could read it. At that time in history, only people, only church leaders who knew Latin read the Bible. It was a real power move to keep power and keep control over the people. And he was an incredibly brilliant scholar and linguist, and he could have used all of that to basically give him greater affluence and privileges in life. But he said, no, he wanted to be a gift to the world for Jesus. And he used all of his skill to translate the Bible so people could know Jesus the way that he knew Jesus, and it cost him his life. And when they came to burn him at the stake, William Tyndall did not say, they're coming for us. He didn't say, we got to stand against this extreme agenda. He didn't say, we got to fight fire with fire. And he didn't say, take control. We actually know what he said. These were his final words. It was a prayer. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Lord, would you cause him to see the truth? Would you cause him to see you? Two years later, the king of England would legalize English Bibles being put in churches around the country so that people could know and read the Bible for themselves. And when William Tyndall was killed, I bet he looked like a loser. I bet he looked weak and foolish to those who had all the power. But in dying to himself, he helped millions of people see the one who died for all. What do you think? Do you think he looked like Jesus? We are the wrapping paper that people have to get through to get to Jesus. And this is something that we get to do individually. We get to decide what do we want to look like. And this is something that we get to do collectively. That Jesus, we want to look like you. And we want, the, by the way that people experience us, we want them to see you and know you. Right now, this month, our church is engaging in, a, I'm just going to call it a big experiment, as a way to, to try and wrap ourselves up in such a way that people see Jesus through us. It's through Ridgefest. A number of years ago, even before I got here, as a massive study done of this community, interviewing leaders in this community, surveying the residents of this community, and we learned a number of things. There are big needs in Rochester. Some of them are too big. We don't know how to solve them, like affordable housing. I don't know how our church is going to help with that. One of the big needs that came out of this survey was this, that there's not enough stuff for families and kids that's safe and affordable. And so we came up with Fridge Fest as a way to, we could serve that need. Doesn't this kid look like he's having a good time? 
Now, if somebody were to say, I don't know why we do Rich Fest, it just seems like it's fun and games. I can understand that, but that's not what it is. We are trying to serve a real need so that people will see that those are kind people, those are generous people. Hopefully, it's a way to help them see Jesus. And it's a huge experiment. It's an experiment. I cannot guarantee you that it's going to work. But I kind of like doing that better than not doing anything. And the hope is this, is that as people encounter us and as they're here with us, as they're here in this building, they could see themselves coming and it would build a bridge of relationship and that we would have greater opportunity to demonstrate Jesus and to share Jesus with them. What do you say? Does that sound like a good thing? And so if you got the time and if you got the energy and if you have the desire in you to say, I want to look like Jesus, I'm asking you, will you sign up today and will you join us? We are the wrapping paper that people have to get through to get to Jesus. Let's look like him.